everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. The digital global age has heralded both beginnings and ends. Nations today stand on the verge of the most transformative period in all of human history as information, communication and digitalization technology, genetics, nanotechnology, robotics, biotechnology and artificial intelligence merge and converge to make the once impossible imagination possible. It is not only human and non-human, that is machine intelligence that will merge and create unthinkable possibilities. The blurring boundaries between cyberspace, geospace and space, as well as nations, its government, industries, organizations, academia and individuals, that is NGIOAI, will fundamentally transform everything around us. The pace of technological change coming our way is so rapid, its impact so deep that each NGIOA, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, individually and collectively, its expectations and experiences are and will be irreversibly transformed. This will undoubtedly change the whole global dynamic security and power structure in CTS, that means cyberspace, geospace, and space. As nations witness the end of its governments, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals living in isolation and the beginning of an interconnected NGIOA world and interdependent global economy that has moved beyond geospace and is now vehemently contesting the commons like cyberspace and space, it is not only the battlefield that has expanded from geospace to cyberspace, geospace, and space, it has fundamentally changed how nations fight wars. While the essential goals of warfare have not changed, the way wars are fought within, between, and across nations certainly have. Because nations witness widespread impact of technology across its government, industries, organizations, and academia, that is NGIOA, it is important to understand and evaluate how the wars are fought not only today, but also will be in the coming tomorrow, and then who will fight the wars and what rules will govern the conduct of warfare in CGS. Since technology drives the transformational change in the warfare, the number of individuals, groups, nation state engaged in this new warfare is complicating the very dynamics of it. So the question is, how are nations preparing themselves for this changing nature of warfare? And how is the introduction of not only cyber weapons, but bioweapons, nanoweapons, along with human and non-human intelligence and methods changing warfare strategy towards defense and offense. To discuss this further, I'm honored to welcome retired General Blaine Holt. Brigadier General Blaine Holt is currently the president of Million Air Inc., an aerospace company based in Houston, Texas. Welcome General Holt, we are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you very much, it's uh, great to be with you. You know, your introduction is very powerful. Um, Ray Kurzweil, who wrote the singularity theory, he could you you could have spoke for him today because that's exactly where we're at with exponential change, and uh, and just to lead us off, I'm not quite sure that any of the major powers are really prepared for this new world that's coming on. Thank you, thank you so much, and you are absolutely right that uh, we are not sure if anyone is prepared at this point. Now, along with information, communication, digitization, technologies, and artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology, biotechnology, and many other advances in science and technology that has 
allowed nations the scientific manufacturing of life, the production of drones, cyber warfare, and so much more, nano warfare, it has made possible the reality of evolution in mass surveillance technologies that we see across nations, space weapons, nano weapons, cyber weapons, bio weapons, and autonomous unmanned systems of all sorts that are fundamentally transforming warfare in cyberspace, geospace, and space. Where are we headed? Well, I, I think the, I think the way to couch this is one word you used in your introduction was that of strategy. And no one's really creating a strategy. And, and what we see coming is technologies merging at such a blinding pace. Bad actors in the world, whether they're state-sponsored or transnationally uh, sponsored, uh, are having their way in using and proliferating these technologies. And on the industrial civil society find is um, a community of nations whose political structures are largely incremental, meaning we don't really purchase weaponry in the United States, for an example, any differently than we did back in 1944. We still have Congress, which authorizes monies, and that's informed by a political argument for technologies and industry is very wedded to the idea of incrementalization because who wants to retool a plant who wants to totally start over again who wants to uh, say that fighter aircraft are may, may be obsolete or the current version of them uh, because that would mean that industry is not prepared to fight that war and so what we do is we answer to symptoms and we see a cyber attack so we build a defense uh, we create more defenses. And, and what I see in terms of a historical parallel is that which the French attempted um, when they built the Maginot Line. Nations and a great wall and German tanks will never come across. Well, the Germans just outmoded them in technology and left those barricades behind. And we find ourselves in the same place. And I believe the reason for that is not because we don't recognize that we're now living in exponential times. I think the reason for that is that, that we have an aversion to actually sitting down and discussing the strategy or putting ourselves to account for record of what we're actually seeking in terms of our policy, our foreign policy. When we started to understand through that process what the threat was, well, then we might respond in very different ways than, than the ways that we respond now. Yes, you are absolutely right about that. It is the strategic security that is at risk. And it's not just the you know, military or the nation's government that needs to be concerned. Each and every entity across NGIO, that means nation's government, industries, organizations, academia, they all have to be concerned about this because, you know, the threat that the cyberspace bring or the all the other converging technologies they bring on the each and existence of each and every entity across industries or academia or organizations it is so severe and its impact is going to be so huge and it will come so rapidly that if if we are not prepared if we are not thinking strategically that okay these are the kind of innovations that would be coming our way in next few years or next five years or next 10 years next 15 20 years 
and how it will impact the current business model that we have, the current products that we have, the current services that we have. How do we prepare, you know, to face that those challenges, or how do we prepare our offensive to towards that those innovations that are coming rapidly our way, who could fundamentally change our existence? If we don't think like that, then then we are, you know, having serious, you know, uh, survival uh, problems, and that is. We all have to be very aware of it, and we have to understand the changing definition of security. So you're absolutely right that it is the strategy that we have to, you know, keep an eye on. What is our strategy? Now, when the rapidly emerging technological convergence that is close to reaching the commercialization stage is about to create a technological tsunami, it will not only fundamentally change human lives that we are expecting for the good, you know, for the human lives, but it will also create new industries, destroy a few industries, impact a large number of industry sectors, evaporate a number of businesses, create significant amount of high-tech specialized and skilled jobs, destroy a large number of unskilled jobs, collapse a few nations and change the nature of an unprecedented number of security risks. It will be by far much more complex and much bigger than any security risk we face in cyberspace currently. War is not fought just by military personnel anymore. Today, war is fought by NGIO within and across its boundaries. So the question is, how are nations fighting the war of competition and survival in CGS, that means cyberspace, geospace, and space? And how are nations, governments, and decision makers independently and collectively ensuring the safety and security of its NGIOA? You see, one of the things as a society over the last 30 years with technological innovation is a pattern of a tech a technological uh, revolution happens and innovation happens like the iPhone comes out or, or we reach a new plateau in computer capacity. We have typically realized a society with, we're just enamored with it, we're excited, we, we try to envelop the technology. But, but that relationship is changing fundamentally with our reaction and, and the problem is government's not keeping up. So, so now I want to branch out to back to what exponential times really look like. On a good side, you could you could read Peter Diamandis's great book uh, Abundance, and you could be left with the feeling that wow, uh, many of our very vexing problems in the world are going to be solved. We're not going to really have fuel problems. We're not really going to have we're not really going to have water problems if you if you subscribe to the way the technology is going. And and by and large, that's true. I take you over to the seminal work that Eric Drexler um, did, who's largely recognized as the father of nanotechnology. And in his book, Engines of Creation, which is very optimistic, he also takes one chapter out, which is where I think those of us concerned with security should keep our attentions. And that's called Engines of Destruction. It's, it's kind of a yin-yang relationship for every positive development that, that, that exponential change a negative outcome. So when we are excited about the human genomic project and then the protein project that comes heals, which is gonna largely wipe out entire classes of disease um, and revolutionize the medical field, that also means that weaponry can be developed that's so lethal that a simple handshake takes out every person who has blue eyes, if you hit the right way. And the concern that I have is 
is that our governmental systems, the, the way that we are structured, defeats us from answering for that world. And we are largely working technological developments with, and, and, and then when you policy and strategy level, uh, it's very hard to find someone in DC who would understand that new developments in nano and cyber are gonna to have to change our foreign policy. That attribution and attribution technology have to be something that we envelop but instead of finding that incremental missile that can now get its target within five inches instead of two feet, and what kind of what kind of ability do I have to find who's attacking me in a cyber place in a space place um, in my industrial base, which is much more part of future warfare? Um, how do I attribute that? And then what type of offensive weapons am I building to? A, deter that type of attack, and then B, if necessary, launch that type of attack. And, and what you've defined is so elegant in terms of industry is now more and more becoming part of the battlefield. For instance, if I wanted to, if I wanted to undermine an adversary in advance of a, of a large conflict, in advance of a large war, well then, it uses a psychological campaign. We put out propaganda. We would um, start to take down certain nodes in their communications network, maybe get a lot of intelligence going. But, but now it seems more likely that an adversary might start by um, conducting large-scale cyber attacks, some of them ransomware attacks that look like crime, that look like something else. But really what it is, is an orchestra takedown of an industrial base in advance of a conflict. And, and where I think we could think that way as a country or as, a, as an alliance, we're talking about NATO or our Pacific allies, um, we've got to change the way we think. And that can only happen with strategic development and really truly understanding what the threat like, and then, and then reaching out. I, I think I think in one measure, we really, really did ourselves a disservice in the United States last year. Um, with good intent, the Defense Department called for this third offset plan to be, to be studied and put into play. And, and what I mean by that is back in the, in, in the post-World War II phase, we had the, the first offset. That was, we're going to leapfrog are any adversary that we have in technology. And you started to see really big technological change come on, uh, bombers that were getting more range. And then we do this again in the early 70s as we see that we're getting back to parity with uh, adversaries. We learn a lot of lessons from the Vietnam War. And, and, and then you start to see by the Gulf War, we've got precision guided munitions and this type of thing. So it means, sounds very reasonable that leveraged on technology would use technology as its as its primary method of defending itself but but last year we said let's do the third offset and i was excited about this i was well where we're going to finally have a discussion about employing uh nanotechnology biogenetics uh, uh, cyber and wrapping them and then and then bring a suite of defensive and offensive weaponry in that realm involving all the players of government all the all, all the uh, organizations and industry, but instead, what we got was 
a couple of key think tanks released their vision of the third offset, largely about doubling belt technology, bombers that could go farther, um, more of the same old, same old, and incremental change, but we don't live in an incremental world anymore. And, and while those types of documents might be mother's milk for industries, I would think if I was sitting at some of the big defense contractors, I would read about how we need to have more stealth and I'd be very excited about my business process. Yes. But, but where I'd be very concerned is that, unfortunately, our adversaries always get a vote too. And, and in that game, there are many adversaries around the world or potential adversaries, state-sponsored, transnational, who um, are not shackled to any industrial uh, or political uh, bonds. They can feel free to go after wherever the leading edge of technology is. And there are, as you said, extremely creative minds around the world um, who are not shackled by the industrial age. Don't say that, you know, you, you could find that your greatest fear comes from a young child without enough to eat in the middle of Africa with an iPad in his hands and is very skilled at using it. Um, that's the world that we have to prepare ourselves to prepare for. And I think when you, you start incremental efforts, we just get further. That is very true, that is very true. Now, either directly or indirectly, each and every nation wants to benefit economically from the potential progress and prosperity associated with the advances in science and technology as seen today in cyberspace, geospace and space. And what we'll see in the coming tomorrow because of the emerging technological superconversions. Now, while the upcoming rapid technological advances are exciting some nations, most nations do not yet have understanding, information and awareness about the potential changes to its NGIO, nor do they have dedicated initiatives to understand its security risk to its NGIO and is a cause of great concern. Even in the well-developed nations, we don't see, like, you know, you were just, uh, you know, telling that there, we don't see such initiatives to understand the impact of the coming technological superconvergence or the rapid pace of technological development and advances and how will it impact our military, our defense, our offense, our industries. We don't see those initiatives and that is a cause of great concern. So how will nations deal with the upcoming changes to NGIO and CGS when there is not much understanding and awareness about the existence of advances in science and technology or its potential or possible impact? You know, this is really where the front lines are of strategy and foreign policy. That's where this intersection is. And this is why my recommendation to leaders in our country would be, we've got to get our own strategic house in order. We have to immediately, and we have to understand that we don't live in an industrial model anymore. We live in a knowledge model. And how we look at the how we form alliances, how we form partnerships around the world to our uh, to to working to the effects that our foreign policy goals uh, point to. We need to we need to start thinking in terms of how you know it used to be foreign aid was such a sole thing. You are going to harness a vehicle like USAID. You're going to go tree. You'll start working on mutual projects. You'll bring in some NGOs. And, and this is a way that you can probably try to work hearts and minds a little bit into 
um, the very Cold War model where you have the in the non-aligned world. Well, in many aspects, you can cast all that aside and what may become in fact more valuable to small and emerging nations is that you've been able to study their fiber infrastructure, where they sit in all of the technologies that their GDP is supported by and start to work with them in terms of resiliency, rely, um, uh, uh, hardening, um, how, detection, and those types of things, and how, how you can bring them under your umbrella because you've thought about these things. And, and leadership is never going to ever be obsolete, in my mind. Uh, we, can, we can have any kind of technological environment, and leadership will always be necessary to lead a policy or a foreign policy. But it gets back to home where we have to understand that we through a first we have to admit that we have a problem. Second, we have to redefine where we are and what type of systems and do we need to build to get to the area we need to be. And then how do we bring in the community of nations and 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 get them to be resilient and at the same time rise. You, Charles Kupchin from CFR wrote, uh, he wrote a great book called uh, No One's World. And it really acknowledges that technological shifts in the past 10 years have rapidly taken the emerging world to a catch-up point. You see it in Africa with leapfrogging technologies. You know, we don't proper wire phone system anymore. We don't do think Bezos is interested in guys uh, by drone thing but if you think about it it's such a different technological journey that those people are on from having absolutely nothing to still struggling economically while having tremendous technology to pull them into a different place that's not our experience our experience is incrementally getting there i had a flip phone i have an iphone i don't remember when the day changed that those things occurred um but but when yours is very different and you don't have a lot of the baggage that the Western nation has, the history, uh, look at life very differently. And, and it's that, that play frontier that you've defined. We have to be more culturally aware. We have to be more culturally adept. We have to, um, it, it can't be this, we're the world hegemon and we're gonna now impact you with this policy. It's more of a co-altitude uh, nations approach where you're Hey, I see you have some, uh, but we've got some experience with that, and we could probably learn from you at the same time. That's the fertile ground. That discussion space, to me, is the fertile ground where the future alliances will come from, where future nations will say, hey, oh, I like the values of this approach. I like that I get protection inside cyber lines. I like that they acknowledge what my GDP is and, and how I support that. And, and that's why I'm going to work inside this cluster of nations. Um, and if we, can, if we could acknowledge that as a foreign policy aim, we will do far better than the old industrial model of where does my Air Force base go and how many millions yes. of dollars. Yes, no, you, you, that is a very good point that you made there. Now, also warfare is not geographically rooted anymore. It has reached the contested commons of cyberspace and space. Practically everything that happens in the geospace is being now mirrored or you know translated in cyberspace. 
For national security planners and strategies, this includes propaganda, espionage, targeting, and to an un unknown extent, probably warfare itself. So like you were saying you know, before, that we have to keep an eye on all these you know, factors. Do nations have initiatives to address the changing reality? That means, you know, right now in our current uh, approach, we are, you know, having gathering security intelligence through various means. But now we have to gather, you know, security intelligence from cyberspace, from the technology innovations, from, you know, new models that are coming out, new business models, new governance models. So we need to gather intelligence from many different, you know, sources. So do we have such initiatives? to address the changing reality of gathering intelligence at this point? You know, it's a, it's a, it's two-part answer here. We do. We absolutely do. There's a lot of initiatives that we have going on in space. Um, I would be one of the ones who would view this with a skeptical eye that, that we don't, we're not doing enough. We're not moving fast enough. Uh, industry uh, is going to itself because it won't wait for DARPA wait thing coming out of the government. Uh, I have been in contact with some folks who have filed patents and are companies that are making it much safer to communicate with from the government to the vendor and the vendor to the government from an from an industrial uh, supplier. I, I find great goodness in those types of but I think I think what we're finding is that government its bureaucracy and its systems are not prepared to keep up with the speed and the pace of the developments that are happening out on the street, in the garages, uh, in a hut in Sudan. Uh, it doesn't matter where they call community of people that are these technologies back and forth. And oftentimes, most times, they start out as innocent. They're not nefarious. Uh, but obviously, bad actors can see great leverage and great uh, uh, usage in those types of technologies, and so they're going after them. And so, so I think there are probably nations that are very small who don't know how gifted they are at cyber, that their governments probably don't understand that there are people in their own boundaries that, that are absolutely on the cutting edge of programming and technology and cyber. Some are actually... And in nations that are not even anything at, at, at the atmosphere. And, and it's because of the explosion in information technology and information being available everywhere. Um, and that said, from an intelligence standpoint, I, I would really cite and recommend uh, the, the work that Verizon does every year on its DBIR report or the defensive defense-based uh, infrastructure report or investigative report. The 2016 report was just released, and it talks about a sharp uptrend in state-sponsored uh, cyber, eventually intelligence, espionage. But a place where what we can do in this space with undermining another country's uh, industrial base. And I, I think they do a good job of, of making sure everybody understands. If another actor wants information that you have badly enough, it's possible to get that information. And these are the baselines that we have to base our next strategy on. This is the type of assumptions and realities that will lead us to the right decisions and the right policies. And even if we get it completely right, 
it will still be a very dangerous and challenging world to confront. But if we can get it right, then some of these incredible advances for humanity that Peter Kurzweil, um, they'll be possible. We can protect it so that world can happen. But, but one should never think that coming off of oil is not without peril in the world. Uh, it just creates a whole lot of have-nots who used to be haves. And so we in the global community have to decide how do these shifts in, 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 in technology that even look great change the entire strategic uh, uh, chessboard. Uh, and that's that's really where we have to be. Yes, very true. Now, there is this vicious power struggle raging on in the cyberspace, you know, at the moment. This new cyber battleground is full of unknowns. We, we don't know who the major players are, minor players are, what the rules of war are, and what are the reasons for war. Now, in this cyber battlefield, the war casualties have been quietly piling up. It seems every nation, its government, industries, organizations, and academia has been hit and is at risk of being hit. No one is being spared, including common citizens. Now, the rapidly transforming cyber battleground brings each nation, each NGIO, the good, the bad, and the unknown. Now, with the world getting immersed in rapid advances in artificial intelligence, information, communication, and cyberspace technology, the activities in cyberspace have become inseparable from activities in geospace and space. The computer code connected computers and internet have connected everything, cyberspace, geospace, and space. So it is becoming clear that the warfare battleground has changed fundamentally. So how are nations reacting to the blurring boundaries of cyberspace with geospace and space and the blurring boundary battleground in CGS? Well, I think they're reacting horribly. <laughs> and I think that <laughs> for the most part, they're reacting uh, lethargically and slow because I don't think they understand how fast things are moving. And the ones who I think are the worst are the, uh, are the nations, the, the, the EU, who those, uh, the folks who would seemingly be in command of the most technology are also in command of the world's biggest bureaucracies. And as you know, in this game, uh, flat and fast is better, and slow and lethargic means you probably are behind and you won't be able to react. So what does that mean? That turned to a new possible trend that we may see on the horizon. More and more, uh, you're seeing transnational groups, and I just don't mean terrorist groups because we often think of, oh, it's, it's transnational, it's terrorism. That's not true. There are national groups that are infinite and they are all over cyberspace and and many of them culturally are starting to shed their boundaries they're starting to shed their cultural uh, mores and you'll see that there are nations with governments that have much younger populations who don't really have an affinity for the concept of border language culture which we're raised with but technology environment in the technology commons you're much more likely to gain uh, cultural acceptance because you have done something in using Python code that nobody else has done before. And now, now folks around the world respect you and gravitate to you. And, and that may sound like something so trivial, but, but it's happening in, on such a scale uh, all over the world that, that that is really another concern is the very concept of the nation state 
uh, is 20 to 30 years as we will have generations that are rising. The world is much more through an 11 inch screen uh, and who they collaborate with and whatever they collaborate on. Then it has to do with your very local environment. Uh, let's take our hometown of Houston. How do I live in Houston? How do I get a job? Uh, a lot of people don't really matter where I live. I'm connected and I'm going to work with these people. Um, that again is another factor that would indicate it should indicate to government leaders that they're hopelessly behind and that it's really, it's time to take incremental governments and incremental bureaucracies and them into exponential times or their effect will not be there. And I worry about things like one day is the, is the defense department irrelevant? Uh, one day is, uh, it, it, you know, who really is the vanguard of the nation? Will it be corporations that have self-interest um, that they're the ones who are going to be on the cutting edge of cyber defense and space defense because they, you know, if you have a big conglomerate like a, a Chevron or somebody, they, they can't live in a world where they can't defend themselves in cyber or they, they can't have access to space. So if, if that's true, does the onus of defense then shift because government's not set up to do that? And, and these are some of the factors that we've got to get our arms around. Uh, we've got to, we've got to understand our young more. We generation X baby boomers. We all just marvel at the millennials and how different they big signal. That is our big aha moment. We shouldn't be just saying, Oh, look at them. They're cute. We should be saying, wow, they're going to run the world in 30 years. What are they going to expect? Yeah. Um, and yeah. we're not doing that. That in fact, we're just angering. <laughs> no, you're right and again you know security is no longer i firmly believe that security is no longer a government affair or you know security i see in the changing world is an ngio affair that means everyone will have to get involved in security this uh, computer and uh, computer code and connected computers has fundamentally changed everything each entity across ngio will have to get involved in security of not only their initiatives or their you know companies or businesses but their nation everyone will have to get involved for the security that is the you know uh, shape i see for the changing model of you know governance defense security everything so time it, it it is again you know this is a slow moving pace of the changes that we see across nations but i see that the new models that we form for the you know digital global age or for the technological uh, you know super convergence that coming our way we'll have to integrate ngio is integrating the boundaries between ngio are blurring boundaries between cgs cyberspace geospace space are blurring so we will have to come up with you know new models of governance new models of defense and security now in a digital global age the defense sector also is going through fundamental transformation as cyber warfare technology is either developed by military, private sector, hacker groups, or even any individual sitting in any corner in the world. So cyber weapons are easy to make and the potential use is unlimited. One doesn't have to be in military or a nation state to do this. They just have to be really, really smart. Anyone can make a cyber weapon these days. So this is a whole new world of unknowns where anyone around us can be our enemy trying to attack us. So it is impossible for us to know who is our enemy and how can we protect ourselves? How can any nation protect themselves from such unknowns? 
we need to start, you know, I think attribution is such a huge issue. And I just, I, I think we need to spend a lot more time there. You know, like, as I said earlier, leadership is never going to be removed from the equation. Another thing that's never going to be removed from the security equation, no matter what the technology is, is balance. So when you have a power balance, you're much more likely to have a conflict than when you have a power balance. And, and in the cyber realm, uh, I think the lack of attribution creates an imbalance that, that really is going to take us to a path. To come. If, if there's a way to attribute an attack to your adversary with that, and your adversary now knows that there's a balance because there's a, a natural deterrence that forms when the adversary can't get at you without the knowledge that that happened. It may happen anyway, but then that would be like an attack harbor. That would be, ah, it's the Japanese, they're here, they're coming, they're bombing. You can see it, we're attributing it, it there's no doubt about it. But, but, but where we get into the danger here is uh, that Pearl Harbor type attack looks a lot, today looks a lot more like, we don't know where it came from, we're not sure, we have some ideas, but we're not very good at tracking how, and we can't really prove it. And because we can't really prove it, when you sit there and look at the United Nations, there's a whole lot of ability to say, well, no, that never happened. Why did, why are you saying this country did it? Because all those politics will start to play out unless you can attribute things. And, and we can push away that example completely and just say, well, what, what causes these things? Well, it's imbalance. So then where does that take me in my strategy? Well, that would say I need to put a lot of resources into tracking and attributing and then, and then defending with options uh, the ability domain is. It could be, be, be the nano swarm that just took out your Air Force base with uh, bots that part the metallurgy of all the airplanes on the base. It could be the EMP pulse that comes down in a directed energy way and takes some of your ships away from you. Yes, that that is a cause of concern, the electromagnetic pulse that you are talking about. Because there are some who say that nations would try to create an electronic doomsday for enemy nations. How would we defend ourselves? How would we prepare for such possibilities? So, So this is a this is a great area to this. How strategically do you, you deter an aggressor from wanting to do that? EMP technology today is not so accessible. It's, it's really got to be a big state actor, especially if it's going to be delivered in a directed energy way from space, which, which is not there quite yet, but we're on the eve of that. But, but as with anything in technology, that will then proliferate out a lot who maybe don't have the sophistication but they certainly could get a hold of a weapon like that and it, and 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 let's talk about the scale of countries on the poverty index if you put an actor who was an emerging nation in the middle of say the the african continent some other place in the world um if there's nothing if there if there is absolutely no downside to them being able to change the entire deck by enacting an EMP attack, uh, then you have to be concerned that no restraint on an actor like that, and you can't deter them. And, and so the way that you deter them is you have to get nations that fit that profile. 
and you have to orient your policies to putting them into a place where they can be deterred. Uh, meaning if a country that has absolutely zero GDP and, and nothing going for you, for example, um, then maybe that's the place where we should focus our aid efforts. Maybe that's the place where we should develop because just like I described, let's get away from space. The, the, the kid in the hut with an iPad uh, is, could become a lethal weapon. I, there was a great study that was uh, uh, the gentleman, uh, and his name eludes me right now, but he wrote the book Room to Read. And he's building libraries around the world. He's, he's really doing some great work. And he teamed up with um, uh, from MIT, did an experiment in, in, I think it was Ethiopia, a remote village. Everyone's illiterate. Um, they put up a solar-powered hut, and they brought out boxes of tablets, iPads, and no instructions. And what they were trying to find out was, can learning happen? Can learning happen on a technological vehicle with zero teacher? And so it was a fascinating uh, uh, laboratory that they created. And they did it over time. And you watch these kids that couldn't even get instruction about how to open the box. And and year they're reading. And then they can be coding and then they can get into the global commons and then they can, and, and they don't have any baggage. There's no, what were you taught? Where, where did your values come from? Where did your morals come from? What would internally deter you from becoming a bad actor? Well, none of that stuff is there in that child, but they certainly learned how to read. Is that not a fertile recruit for an organization like ISIS or uh, an extremist organization to come in and say, wow, so if these kids are doing nothing but learning cyber and they have no baggage, um, what would it take for me to activate them? Yeah. And it's those countries, these types of things are going to be happening where I was saying, we need to have a policy. We need to have a strategy and we need to direct our aid in many different ways. And it may not just be, let's go build you a school or let's have a hospital for you. Uh, or let the other thing that's funny is, hey, I know we'll give your country weaponry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. These are old Cold War models that are being applied to our exponential world, and they don't fit. And so this is why I think we're at this intersection between Diamandis's abundance and, and direction, and we need to fashion a strategy and a policy that, is very that, true. that can help Yes, yes, no, that is very true. Now, there's also another concern that is about the misinformation that's spreading on the in the cyberspace. It is becoming clear that cyber threats are not coming only in the form of hacking, you know, by the ISIS or by some, you know, bad actors or by individuals or individual groups. Now, there are reports that some nations have set up sophisticated troll army under the umbrella of its cyber research agency and their goal is to wage a massive disinformation campaign in support of their individual goals it could be political goals it could be you know industry goals or any kind of ambition now this misinformation warfare is a cause of concern as it compromises 
the very integrity of information and it's very difficult to change the public opinion once that you know is set once they start believing this misinformation so how can we fight that you know in this very complex digital global age well this has been a component of warfare forever uh, and the thing is that as with all forms of warfare it just becomes more and more lethal um, we saw this in the campaign uh, with the takedown of that part of U Ukraine and the, the disinformation going out across the region, who the bad actors were and who the good actors were. And I, I'm not sure the campaign was completely successful in terms of its propaganda value, except to say that it was successful in terms of doubt in the population about about the any information that they were getting. So, so my government, I can't trust the others who just said they're saving us by taking Crimea. Um, and it creates enough of a the population that you create chaos. And if you create chaos, you can actually achieve quite a few aims. Yes. Uh, the, the trouble with information warfare is that if we are going to put ourselves in an area where, where we can't really trust the information that we see before us on the internet or, or whatever, I, I, think, I think over time there's going to be a numbing effect to how effective that can be. So if, if you look, look at what's happened to the news media uh, in the United States over the past 30 years, you see print media going away rapidly. You see uh, traditional journalism outlets going away um, people have uh, have been very upset with the from one bias or another bias, and and therefore books more and more, and many more of the younger ones, we get our own news from where we get our news. We find our own trusted sources. We go to the places we like to get the news from. Unfortunately, there's a psychological component to that too. I believe what I believe, so I'm going to be attracted to things that reinforce what I and and and. So you list now um, going away or in a downtrend uh, from the traditional outlets. There's no more of this. I'm Tom Brokaw. I'm Tom Brokaw. I'm on nightly news, and you can believe it. Uh, I'm Walter Cronkite, and that's the way it is. That is yielding itself to. I'm on the ground in uh, Dhaka, and I can see what's happening before my eyes, and I'm reporting on it. And you'll either trust me or not trust me. Now, the place where it gets crazy is. We never know who that person in Dakar is anyway. We just say, this seems reasonable yes. to me unless I see something they counter. Yeah. But the possibility that transnationals and state actors have now is to create thousands of other of those citizen journalists to see stories that are remarkable statistically. That if I, and you can see it with these info bubbles that you, you have, is if I drop a story here and I drop a stir, I can create a lot of effect, and, I, I, and I, I now move public opinion in a different direction. And again, just like if I was to conduct a warfare in this new method, just like I would be interested in taking down an industrial base in advance of a hot war, or yeah. very interested in the, the psychological operations that could come from uh, putting spin on the ball and, and really changing the way that a population views a story. Or do you, could you possibly influence another country's uh, political outcome 
by uh, uh, getting various stories or creating um, information lines, tweets, social media uh, from outside a country into a country to get the president that you want to work with. Um, to, and does that happen? I believe, I completely believe that that happens. Uh, we can track money flows into our own U.S. political strike concern and worry. But, but, but future generals, future commanders will take a look at that phenomenon and go, well, I could leverage that for the military campaign. Yes. And, and ISIS actors or not transnational bad actors could say, I could make that work for me. Wait a minute, they do that because that's what the B about with its recruiting they're doing it now. Yes, very true, very true. Now, in addition to cyber warfare today, nations are also at another major modulation point, one in which information, communication, digitalization, technology, along with the advances in artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology, neuroscience, biotechnology, are reshaping the way wars are fought. Now, the future of warfare will be shaped by the role of probably, you know, ever smaller drones that are, you know, coming our way, robots on the battlefield, offensive cyber warfare capabilities, extraordinary, you know, mass surveillance capabilities, both on the battlefield and, you know, off the battlefield and special forces, you know, and uh, militarization of space. Of course, that is a very, you know, big concern coming our way and perhaps uh, uh, translation of, uh, what we are seeing in cyberspace, the complex challenges, we will see similar challenges coming with the biotechnology sector that has very important implications for bioweaponry and bioweapons. So what impact do you see on the nation's warfare with the you know, bioweapons, nanoweapons, cyber weapons, space weapons that are you know, coming our way? I, what I worry about is in a, in a post-Westphalia construct of nation states that see an ability to have laws of war, conventions like the Geneva Convention, treaties that are acknowledging that some fear are so lethal that you could fall into total war or war of survival very quickly. And so you have signatories. What I worry that is that that institution of executing treaties back and forth and having an agreed upon system of warfare doesn't match up and it breaks apart when you take a look at some of the technological uh, advances that are coming online. And it gets, it gets back to that, that point of balance is if a country views that there's really no deterrent for it to do a certain thing or if a transnational group does and they're not signatories to anything or even if they were, how does that protect us? Um, you know, we've seen breaches of the chemical weapons treaties over the years, and and then we can look at how does that affect affect IO. We, you know, we 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 in our traditional dipl diplomatic concept will say diplomatic push with the navy will come together and compel that nation to act in a way that the community of nations can accept. And what I worry about is that more and more respect for those institutions, uh, their efficacy, the efficacy of treaties starts to diminish as we see this sharp turn upward in the convergence 
Um, and especially as you get new developments online, you could say, oh, well, I, I signed a treaty that says I wasn't going to conduct chemical warfare, but, but, but my new weapon is a, is a nanobot that carries a biotoxin that is delivered from an artificial intelligence engine. And that, that doesn't even fit into. So the lawyers can argue back and forth whether you broke the treaty or not, but the, but, but the bad part is, is you could have uh, an incredible uh, epidemic or pandemic on your hands just as an outcropping of war. Um, and then you have incremental bureaucracy, the, the diplomacy of it, or the arcane diplomacy of it, but, but we'll have to be the ones who deal with the outcomes. And, and rather than deal with the outcomes and say, wow, this is really bad, somebody should do something, which is what we normally do. We should get ahead of it and we should plan for it and say these things are possible. And even where there's friction among states, you know, uh, the U.S. relationship, you could call them an adversary on Monday, you could call them your best friend on Tuesday, and you could say it's neutral all the rest of the days of the week. It's complicated. It is. <laughs> it is. It is very complicated. In China and the U.S. have a lot of common interests. The U.S. and Russia have a lot, a lot of common There are areas where nations would do well to come together and talk about these strategic outcomes uh, and the outcomes of their choices. Because it's probably not from a big, big actor that we something recklessly done that locally puts us on a bad course in the conjure. It would probably come from a different type of actor, one without a lot of deterrence. Uh, Kim Jong-un comes to mind. Uh, this, this, you know, the, the repeated, um, very, very difficult to understand irrational behavior from, and if you have an actor that doesn't have a lot of deterrent value, then you have to decide what's the strategy going to be because you can easily see the technological uh, trajectory that they're on and it, it is, it's steep and it's going upward. Yes. Uh, uh, so this is the reason that leadership strategy balance. These are old yes. terms. They're not technological terms, but, but these are the things that will take us to where we need to be. And at the same time, a willingness to put aside old structures, stand structures that slow you down, that, that don't serve anymore, that they used to, that they don't. Finding processes to meet this world. Those are the things that we need to do. Those are the yes. those are the things that we need to do to confront the new nature of warfare. Absolutely, absolutely. All these good. You are absolutely right. Those you know, the fundamental principles. They are always true, and they are always you know valid, even in this you know complex digital global age. But what we talk, what you were just mentioning about bioweapons, it is a cause of concern because now the human genome, the information about human genome which is essentially the design of a weapon of mass destruction. It is, you know, available freely on the internet. And that is a very cause of concern because now individuals can construct, anyone can, you know, get the information from the internet and they can construct highly contagious, extremely lethal viruses or, you know, bacteria or any other kind of parasite. The and the wisdom of each and every human we cannot trust across nations. It could be in the hand of good people who is trying to, you know, do good for the society and humanity, or it could be 
fall in the hand of bad people so obviously the genomic revolution is but one area of rapid technological growth that is dual use and there are complex security risk and what concerns me is that especially if you look at in the united states there is a movement that is growing quietly steadily is about do it yourself biologists so they are to be exact they could end up making bio warfare impossible to manage because there are individuals and groups today who are willing and intelligently circumventing convention in science research and perhaps finding themselves stumbling into uncharted areas of biology to make new discoveries they are not associated or affiliated with academia so far you would think that this kind of research would happen only in academia but now this happens in anybody's basement or garage they are setting up labs to do research these groups uh, i i'm not saying that these groups are doing anything wrong but if these groups have the capability to do this kind of research you know independently without any barriers of academic corporate government you know uh, boundaries or machine or sponsorship or intellectual property or regulation the groups like diy bio h plus and uh, diy h plus these groups are doing it if these groups are doing this kind of you know research that could you know end up in bio warfare anybody could be doing it and we won't even know who is working on you know this kind of research and who would be developing this kind of bioweapons this is a glaring area where is probably hurting more than it's helping but but government thinks it's helping and and so take a look at um, the regulation me uh, mechanisms in the United States so you have department of agriculture you've got food and drug administration and and so it gets us to this place of imbalance I'm talking. So on the bad side, the DIY bios that you have, um, actually some of them are right out in the open. There's a, I just read about a, a laboratory that's um, crowdfunded in Brooklyn where anybody can come do any experiment they want and just really undo whatever you want to do. Um, that world is unshackled and that world can develop at whatever pace the brains in that world can propel it to. There's nothing to deter that world from going to wherever they want to go. At the same time, on the good side, so we have incredible companies with great R&D efforts, great institutional support, institutions that are doing uh, gen uh, genetic therapies and, and biotherapies out of the genome project, the Proteum project, that are going to do remarkable things, but they have drag devices on them. They have the weight of bureaucracy of regulation, the weight of inspection and, and paperwork and all of those things that they're shackled. They are shackled. So they're making advances, but then to get a new drug to market, this is what you have to do. It's, it's incredible. And all the laws that come with that espousing that we don't regulate. But what I am saying is there is a peril that we induce by back very good research that could be the counters to some of the bad stuff that's happening. And so on the good side, you got government holding down the good guys. And on the unshackled side, you got the wild, wild west where some folks could do they're out of balance. So it could have caught up to here and they could have been in parity. And the bad thing done here could have been covered by the good thing done here. 
but the bureaucracy that's not ready for an exponential world doesn't know who Ray Kurzweil is, never heard of the singularity, is down here. Because on it, we have to regulate these things. They're crazy, and they don't even understand the technologies that they're regulating. True, very true. This, this is a place where, in our national strategy, we should sit there and say, you know, organizations like we have with DARPA. So should DARPA have any shackles on it? Shouldn't there be an element of our government where we can harness with leverage industry and academics and those more so than we do now? I understand there's a sliver of this, but more so than we do now to meet these challenges to say, well, this group of scientists is unshackled. They, they, these are the strategic goals and we need to go after these things to meet this challenge that's coming on, on the threat. Because uh, I, another book I'd recommend, I always recommend a ton of books, is Andy, Andy Krepanevich, who wrote uh, The Seven Deadly Scenarios. He was the recently retired president from CSBA. I, I recommend that to every young officer who comes to me for suggestions on what to read. There's, the pandemic one is certainly there. And it's yeah. all of these ways. That can, the only updates that you could ever make to the book is just change out the technologies, but they're certainly there for us to worry about and to yes. construct strategy against. Very true. Very true. Now, we, we probably won't have uh, enough time to talk about nanoweapons and artificial intelligence in this session. This topic is so broad. I mean, there are the changing nature of warfare is so broad, so complex that it would take us probably if we talk 24 hours a day, it would take us at least uh, probably a week before we can address each and every area. So we will do, we will cover as many topics as possible today, but then we will have different more sessions to uh, in the coming days and weeks so that we can address each and every area that is a cause of concern and that is a change that needs to be addressed in the changing nature of warfare but let's talk briefly about the nanotechnology and nano defense that is shaping up that is expected to bring innovations in broad wide-ranging areas that will revolutionize military and play a critical role in maintaining national security now while there are reports that some are already using nanotechnology applications in the military I, I don't have uh, the current data, but uh, from, from what I read, you know, last year that it, it was in the form of nanoparticles, user surface coatings, nanomaterials and structures, nanofabrication, uh, and much more. It gives them much needed ability. The coming years will probably bring transforming ability that will go beyond current capabilities and human imagination that we will for instance, we'll be able to detoxify an exposed area to toxins. We will be able to detect the onset of diseases. That is a cause of concern because now anyone can you know, create bioweapons and throw it anywhere. So we need an ability to detect the onset of disease. Uh, and probably this you know, nano uh, technology will give us that ability so that we can quickly identify that. We can secure electronic information and communication networks and so on. So, how, in your assessment, how do you think the nano armed forces would look like in the coming years? Well, there, you know, it's it, there's infinite possibilities in nano, and where I find that, um, I think it'll probably lay out uh, in a in a convergence of nano plus a technology. So nano bio, yes, field and the best effort to recover from the toxins they faced on the battlefield. There are nanobots that are now in the bloodstream and they're going to work on, 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 on the fix. Um, nano, um, nano engines 
delivered via nano swarms. That to me is something that is a very, very serious ability that is coming on best. And if I have the ability to drop a swarm on an installation, a power grid, uh, and, and these are bots that are gonna break things down at the molecular level to make them unusable. That, that is something that is gonna have to have a counter to it. And it's one of those things that you, if you're gonna develop your nano army, you better, you better develop the nano defenders as well because uh, you are going to be facing those. Yes. And then we will be looking at all kinds of interesting things about how to detect when a nano when a nano attack is present, uh, because that may be the new, new game is how do I know that the metallurgy in my airplane has been broken down to where it's unusable? It still looks like the airplane looks flyable, looks usable, and then I go up and I take off, and the whole thing falls apart around me. I I, I have to be able to understand that that's what's occurred, and and where I find some um, uh, de developments is in the work we're doing, especially here with material science. And so that's probably where the detection comes from. The skin of the airplane actually detects that it's under attack and says I've been compromised or, or it has its own nanobots on board or end airplane. And I'm sure it's much smaller than the ones that we fly right now. And, and the nano force on board goes and repairs all that damage at the molecular level. Um, but, but where I see, we, we, we've got to envision what's possible with nano. And that means, hey, it, would somebody put a nanobot into fiber? Would somebody put that into fiber optics? Would somebody um, try to leverage nano ability in space where um, I get by your satellite and I can deliver something to that satellite? Um, you know, there's a lot of work done in, in how uh, different types of media's uh, radio frequency and by, by light. And again, where does nano play into that? Um, because if I have nano, I have an engine. And if I have an engine, an engine can do something. And, and if there's a media, light, particles, beam, directed energy, well, now I have a way to project that force. And I have a way to project it very fast. And so I guarantee you there are small pockets in the United States and in other governments around the world that are talking about these things. And um, uh, my last research indicates to me that China is very far out in their research on nano, they're doing well. um, but, but, I, but what I would say is, is that the mainstream, the, the policymakers, the folks who wake up in the morning and say, I'm gonna decide what the next great strategy is, like rebalancing, <laughs> and, and and those folks are not talking about this. Those folks don't have that. It's, it's not in their lexicon to work with that on their mind. And that has to change. Um, yes. And, and that's how we're going to confront things like nano. But nano to me is, it's unlimited. It's unlimited what it could become. Yes, and the nano manufacturing that will, that will you know, give up ability to manufacture so rapidly that is a real cause of concern and it will fundamentally it has the potential of fundamentally reversing the globalization itself because you could create whatever you need for your industries right here you know right within your nation and you can create nano defense and nano uh, armies and 
it is a very complex challenge. So to prevent an all-out nano war is probably going to be very, very difficult. And then the other part is, you, what you just got on was the suggestion that possibly our entire global economic structure and goes away. Yes. And now what do we call that? Well, that's disruption. So that the human condition has disruption without a big war or conflict or uh, the haves and the have nots getting together about resources. Um, and so plan for this world is far better than not planning for this world. And you, you're already seeing this uh, in, in additive manufacturing. And we're only in the baby stages of what 3D printing and 4D printing can, uh, can accomplish. But when you add nanotech, you're absolutely right. A lot of our needs would be met just there. But then there's the economic, if I remove human uh, from the means of production, meaning the labor force is not the labor force as we know it. How am I, how does that economy work and how does that get paid for? And maybe we just are talking in completely the wrong terms because it's all, it's all very different. Again, these are conversations that, that our policymakers and our leaders need to have. Um, yes. And, and just as early as five years ago, if, if you uh, tried to get, you know, a policymaker to read the book, The Singularity is Near, you were asking for a lot. You weren't going to get them there. Yes. Uh, I think Singularity University, some of them are actually the proof of concept uh, and Ray Kurzweil's theories are coming together. And so maybe that's scaring some early adopters to get into the space and, and have this discussion from a leadership aspect. Um, be, be, because I'm not, you know, Pearl Harbor, my father joins the Navy and the rest of the, and the rest of the nation goes to work and builds thousands of airplanes and we build thousands of this and that and we get ready for this big conflict. They don't have that kind of time anymore. So if you face a, a, a Pearl Harbor event in, the, in this new nature of warfare that cuts across every single line, um, we, we will not be given the gift of time to respond to that. We yes. will only have whatever plan we have and we'll have to do the best that we can. And, and that's the place where I would urge to, to say, you're just not ready for this. We're not ready for this. That is true, and that is uh, that is a cause of concern. Nobody is ready for that. So, General Holt, I have taken so much of your time. You are a busy man, and uh, you have been kind enough to come on Risk Roundup and share your such a valuable insight. You have such a depth of knowledge about each and every area of you know warfare, possible you know war weapons, and uh, you have uh, such a visionary outlook about what needs to be done. So, I'm sure our global viewers and listeners are going to benefit tremendously from what you had to say today. And I hope that you know in the coming uh, days, weeks, and months and years as we do more research and we come across you know more areas where you would be able to uh, share your wisdom and you know input and knowledge i hope that you would come again on this ground up and uh, you know share your thoughts with us always happy to help doctor thanks for having me on board today i really appreciate the opportunity wonderful so before we go i this is the last question for you what concerns you the most in the changing nature of warfare and then i will make a closing statement 
that we're not developing the correct strategy to respond to the changing nature of warfare. It has to be that. It has to start with strategy. Yes, that is very true. So thank you so much again, General Hall. Now, as information communication and digitization technology, along with genetics, nanotechnology, robotics, biotechnology, and artificial intelligence merge and converge to make the once impossible imagination possible and begin to transform the global defense, offense, and security industry, it is vital that we understand, each and every individual understand changing nature of security weapons of war and evaluate the current and future state of warfare, militaries and international security and what role we all have to play each individual, each entity across nations, its government industries, organizations and academia. While all nations are eager to benefit from advances in science and technology initiatives, either directly or indirectly, most nations do not yet have dedicated cyber defense, nano defense, bio defense, or technology defense initiatives. This is a cause of serious concern. Now the scale of what needs to be done and what has to change to secure NGIOAI, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals, is way beyond what any component of a nation can do individually, even governments. It is time each nation, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, understand the threats coming from cyberspace, geospace, and space, and evaluate the evolution of cyber warfare, its potential, its cost, and its increasingly important role in geopolitics, warfare, security, and peace. The challenges and complexities of evolving threats across NGIO and CGS has crossed the barriers of space, ideology, and politics. It demands a constructive collaborative effort of all stakeholders across NGIOI. When the changing nature of threats are bringing new sets of security and welfare and warfare challenges and complexities, collective NGIO brainstorming is a necessity and not an option like what we are doing right now. We have general halt on our risk roundup and we are having a brainstorming session to have an objective evaluation of what is a threat and how can it be secured. Risk Group Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIO in CGS. And we can discuss, debate, and define necessary frameworks, structure, processes, tools, and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also of the coming technological superconvergence. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risks together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or to hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupalacy.com. Do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.